Well, we are in the Christmas season, and uh, it's the time of year. Again, again, I'm just going to repeat a little bit of what I just said, that we celebrate what God has done. We celebrate that he actually has accomplished everything he said he would accomplish. He promised a Savior, and he sent a Savior. And so for the next three weeks, including today, it should be Christmas Sunday in three weeks, one, two, three, yep, uh, I'm going to preach from a story um, in the Bible. In fact, it's in the Old Testament that I hope will pique our interest and highlight the promise given to God's people about the Savior. If you're not aware about the Bible, if you're here and you don't open it up very often, uh, maybe it intimidates you just a little bit, maybe you don't know where to start when you open it, let me just tell you that the entire Bible is one long story about how God is saving people. That's pretty much what the entire Bible is about. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's a lot of things that we don't seem to understand. It's written over a span of about 1,400, 1,600 years. There's 40 different authors. But one thing is true about the Bible is that everything points to Jesus. Every single thing in the Bible, every chapter, every verse, every word is preparing people or telling people about the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament, that's the first part of your Bible, all the way up until Micah, I believe. Don't test me on that one. Uh, The Old Testament predicts the coming of Jesus. So it's preparing people that the Savior would come. There is one who's going to come, who's going to reverse everything evil and wicked in this world. One thing that the human mind asks itself quite a bit is why is the world the way it is? Why is it this way? We've all asked ourselves that question, whether we've used those words or not. Why is the world the way it is? And the Old Testament predicts the coming of Jesus, the one who would make all things new. The Gospels, those are the first four books of your New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are called the Gospels. They reveal who Jesus is. It's part of your Bible. The book of Acts is about the preaching of Jesus. The preaching of Jesus and the Spirit of God. That's the entire book of Acts. The New Testament letters, like uh, we just went through the letter of Ephesians, those types of letters sent to the churches, those explain the person of Jesus. And they explain what his work has accomplished. And they explain how the Spirit transforms the Christian. Revelation, the final book that intimidates everybody and everyone likes to argue about, predicts the return of Jesus. So you see, the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. So whether you've read the Bible for the first time or read the first book or the last book, I want you to see that every single book of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. Every story, every verse, every chapter, every decision made, every person, every character is there for a reason. Now, We do need to understand what the Bible is telling us about how God comes to save sinners because that's absolutely what we need. Every single person needs God to intervene for them. They need God to come for them, to save them. Because all of creation is under the curse of what the Bible calls sin. It's rebellion towards God. It's uh, sin, if you were to take the, the the children's catechism we use at home, sin is ignoring God and the world he created. So it's not giving him all the credit for everything that we, we have and everything that we see. And it's also not doing what he has required of us in his law. That's sin. Anything that falls within those two categories is sin. And all of us are under the curse of this sin. All of us, the Bible says, have fallen short of God's glory. We miss the mark. We don't do the things we're supposed to do. In fact, we do a lot of things we're not supposed to do. And because of this reason, we're separated from God. We're cut off from him. We're cut off from the light of his presence, and we're out here living in darkness of sin. 
You know, if that were not bad enough to be separated from a life-giving God, the one who created all things, everyone will also be judged for sin. This is the part where it kind of gets us a little nervous a little bit. We get a little bit anxious about this part. There will come a day when God will seek justice and judge every person who has ever lived. There will come a day where every person will either be welcomed into his presence forever or they will be cast away from his presence forever. Every person will be welcomed into heaven or cast into hell. It's because Romans 6 says this, for the wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death every single time. It's 100 out of 100. It's never failed. But, remember that's the best word in the Bible, but, because it always comes after something bad. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the gift. That's what God has given to his people. That's what God has given to the world. He's given this gift of eternal life. And this eternal life comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Sin leads to death. Jesus Christ leads to life. So when you celebrate Christmas this season, celebrate with a party. Remember? Have fun. Give gifts. Give really good gifts, you know? And make a few on your own. That's really fun, too. That's what my kids like to do. They take all the scrap pieces of stuff in our garage and they make gifts. So if you get one, it better be the best gift you've ever gotten. Eat really good food. Amen? Really good food. Man, eating food is worship. That's a whole different sermon. Spend time with family and friends, right? Because why? Because we have eternal life. Amen? We've been given this gift. Christmas is a joy. Have joy in all things during Christmas. Celebrate Christmas with Pure joy because God, our God, has done what he said he would do. And here's what he's done. He has sent heaven's champion. He has sent heaven's champion. More about that in a minute. Contrast this with all the other gods, lowercase g, gods of the world. All of them promise much and none of them have delivered and none of them will deliver. The reason they cannot deliver is because they're false. They're fake. They are created and fashioned by human hands. The psalmist, in the middle of your Bible, there's this long book called Psalms. It's a lot of poetry. This is what one of them says. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Worthless. Worthless, fake, little statues. But the Lord made the heavens. And it says again, "Their their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. Contrast that with the one true living God, the one who spoke the world into existence. The one who knew that you would be here before he even spoke the world into existence. The one who knows you in and out. The one who knew you before you were formed in the womb. The creator, God. All of these things, this is why the birth of Jesus Christ is so significant. Because Christmas is a celebration about God doing what he said he would do. He does have a mouth and he does speak. He does have hands and he does work. He does have feet and he does walk. He is real and he is near. Now what I'd like to do with that short introduction is to take us to an ancient story of the Bible this week and next week. We're going to kind of do a one story in two parts. It's an ancient story in the Bible, and this, it points to how God has sent heaven's champion for us. 
At first, this story may seem out of place, considering the season, but I can assure you that it is not. And I want to read from this ancient story because it gives us this glimpse of how God orchestrated the birth of Jesus Christ. And this is an ancient story about a ruddy, or ruddy, however you say that word, a ruddy shepherd boy named David, and you guessed it, some of you guessed it, and a tall warrior-like man named Goliath. And I always say his name like that, and I don't know why. I have read one too many Goliath children's stories. You know, you got to get a little acting. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. First Samuel, we have probably never ta- learned from this book in our three and a half years. It's in your Old Testament. It's toward the beginning of your Bible. It's going to be this skinny section over here. Um, Adam, there's a lot of those noises and stuff. Is there anything I can do? Thanks, Kenny. Merry Christmas. All right. Um, it's in your Old Testament, and you can use the concordance in your Bible, in the, front of your, in the front of your Bible. If you've arrived in, like, the book of Psalms, too far. Go back, okay? If you're in Chronicles, go back to your left. You'll get there eventually. Now, there are two books of Samuel. The book of First and Second Samuel, let me tell you what the, these entire two books are about. It's all about how God orchestrates the salvation of his people. That's what both of these books are about. A lot of historical data in here, a lot of stories, quite different from the letter of Ephesians we just learned. Letter of Ephesians, it was instruction to the church, truth and knowledge about Jesus and what that means. These books in the Old Testament, they're about what happened. They're historical accounting. Somebody wrote these things down to record it for human history. Now, 1 and 2 Samuel is all about how God saves his people. And within the book of 1 Samuel, we find the story of David and Goliath. Now, maybe you have heard the story, or maybe you have not. Whether you have or have not, what I have been doing is praying that the story will reveal to you how faithful our God really is. Because, man, we screwed it up a lot. If we put ourselves in the story way back then, God had plenty of chances to say, what is wrong with you people? I've given up. I'm going a different route. But he doesn't. God did what he said he would do. And 1 Samuel tells us and shows us how he has sent heaven's champion. So that's the next three weeks. If I were to title it, next two or three weeks, it would be called Heaven's Champion. This is what the story of David and Goliath is about. Someone who stands in between. That's what champion means. Someone in the in-between. Someone to go before you. Someone to stand between you and harm. You and danger. And that's what the story of David and Goliath is all about. The man in the middle, the one who comes forward to conquer and defeat our most feared enemy, which is death. There has never been a greater enemy in all of human history than death itself. I would say everything that, every fear that stems in your life, in your heart, in your mind, finds its root in death. Death is scary. And here's why. Death bats at 100%. Because one out of one people, what? Die. We die. People, lives will begin and they will end. But you see, what the Bible does is give us this promise of this resurrection, this eternal life, which is why the story of David and Goliath is so interesting because heaven's champion comes. Heaven's champion steps in the middle and heaven's champion fights for us to defeat this great enemy. Now, before I read 
from the story of David and Goliath. I may not get as far as some of you would like me to get today. We do have to get a little bit of background information to you so you understand where we are at. The book of 1 Samuel is a historical book, and like I said, it's filled with all sorts of information about what really happened in times past. It reads like a story, and that's the way I'm going to attempt to preach it. So in this book, there was a prophet named Samuel. That's pretty easy. There's a prophet named Samuel, and a prophet is someone who spoke for God. That's what, just, that's what that means. Someone who was sent from God to speak to God's people. So just as I tell you what the word of God says, the prophet would tell the people what the word of the Lord was. A prophet is someone who speaks for God, and I'm not a prophet. I didn't say that. And he is given the task of appointing the very first king of Israel. That's what Samuel is charged to do in this book. And you're like, the very first king? What do you mean? Kings are always around. Every movie I watch, you know, has a king and all those medieval kings. We've always had kings. Well, it's not true. Now, Samuel is tasked with giving Israel, that's the nation of God, the people of God, those chosen people that God called out for himself. And he called these people so they would observe his law and be a light into the world. See, the nation of Israel was chosen to be a light to the dark and dying world, much like the church is to be a light to a dark and dying world today. The same thing, that was their call. Reveal who God is. Show them what my law is. Show them why it's a blessing. Live the way I tell you to live so that the world may see that there is a God. Now, for a long time, these people, the Israelites, they were ruled and governed by God, straight by God through prophets and judges. Meaning, The prophets would speak and the people would listen and they would obey. And the judges would would stand before people and help people settle disputes and all those types of things. That's how God ruled his people. But then one day, Israel looked around and they said, hey, we want a king like all the other nations. Everybody else has got this king. Strapping, tall, powerful, handsome, This king that protects them and provides for them. That's what we want. We don't want any more prophets, any more judges. We want a king. We want to be like the other nations. We want our own king, a man who can rule over us because we want to be like the other nations. That's, quote, what Israel said in 1 Samuel. Give us a king. It's at this point, Samuel says, listen, you do not want a king. Not because I'm selfish and I want to keep my job, but... (laughs) You do not want a king because here is what will happen. I'm going to read a little bit for you from chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, 11 through somewhere around 21 or 22. This is Samuel. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve you with his chariots and his horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be the commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your, um, and of your vintage and give it to the officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you. Listen, people, here's what kings do. Kings are people like you and me. They're not perfect. They're not going to judge with equity. 
like the person in Isaiah 11 will. They're not going to be altogether righteous and do everything right, all the ways that you think they're going to do it right. They're going to rule like sinful people would rule. Verse 19, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, exclamation point. You know what that means. No, you know, something like that. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Now let me ask you, was Israel like all the other nations? They were not. They were God's chosen people. Now, I can also tell you that they probably felt, you know, a little like the last person picked in kickball. You know what I mean? As God says, Israel, when I chose you, I didn't chose you because you were powerful or because you were mighty or because you were wealthy. What does God tell them? I chose you because you were small. You were insignificant. I made you a people. And what we see from the very early parts of the Bible is that it's not might and power that come to rule the world. What is it? Jesus tells us, the meek shall inherit and rule the world. See, our minds get all twisted up in what we need to persevere and to conquer, doesn't it? We have this idea of what we need. Especially in our American culture, we know exactly what we need to stay on top, to stay in power. That's not at all what God says he needs. They refused to listen to Samuel. No, we want a king. When Samuel heard all the people, he repeated it to God. In verse 22, the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. At this moment in history, you need to understand that God's people had already seen the very power of God, or they've heard about it. They knew what he did in Egypt. And if you don't know that story, we'll preach that some other time. For 400 years, these very same people and their forefathers and their forefathers were in slavery to a powerful nation. They were nobodies. They made bricks for houses, and that's all they did. And God saved them. He used a man named Moses and a man named Aaron. And he, he parts this huge body of water called the Red Sea and they walk across it and they saw this all with their own eyes. They literally walked out of Egypt and nobody was hurt. They know who this God is. And in fact, the surrounding nations knew who this God was. If you read the Old Testament, you'll quickly see other nations go, we know that you're the God, the people of the Lord. We know that he's powerful. We've heard what he did in Egypt. We know all about the God, your God. We know him. We know Yahweh. We know all about this God. So you have this people who have been cared for by God their entire lives. Tell the prophet of God, we don't want what God's given us. We want a king. So God chooses a king. And the first king of Israel's name is Saul. S-A-U-L. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel was broken down into 12 tribes of people. And as you would expect, the man chosen to rule as king was handsome. He was young. And as chapter 9 in 1 Samuel says, quote, he was more handsome than any other man in Israel. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other people. Well, there you go. What a perfect guy to be king. What a perfect personality. We want that guy, the one who everyone can see. The guy who can probably carry a shield and wave a sword. You know, there's a huge problem with God's people when they value personality over character. Amen? It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem in the church. It's a huge problem in our world. God doesn't value personality. God values character. 
So Samuel meets up with Saul. And you can imagine Saul, he's, you know, if you read the story, he's like, what? What is going on? He meets up with Saul and says something to the effect of, I'm paraphrasing about four chapters. Guess what? You're the king now. King. And here's what he tells them. You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. That's the first thing that Samuel says to Saul. You're going to reign over these people, and you are going to be the one who helps save them from their enemies. So right away we see, we see the job of a king is to protect people from harm, from the enemy. And this is the one of the most significant things that Samuel communicates to Saul. Protect God's people from the enemy. As you can imagine, in ancient days, there's a lot of wars going on, a lot of people groups, a lot of tribes. You needed men of valor. You needed warriors to protect your wives and your daughters. You needed men who were willing to die and lay down their lives to protect their people. And this was jo- uh, Saul's job. He was supposed to set this up. Fast forward a little bit more in time, and Saul is defeating enemies. He's protecting God's people. He's doing exactly what God said he would do. He fights many battles, and he wins many battles until, until the day that Saul fails. He does not keep the word of the Lord, First Samuel says. He doesn't follow instruction. He brings a sacrifice that he's not supposed to bring. He doesn't do the very thing that God tells him to do in, in one of, a few of these circumstances. There was a time that he did follow instruction, but of course, because Saul is a created image bearer of God, full of sin and pride, he fails. He misses the mark. Because of this, the story records that God was grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Now, if you were to survey the Old Testament and look at all the kings that had come into place after Saul, Saul's a pretty decent guy. (laughs) He really is. Doesn't do a whole lot of wicked stuff. There's a lot of wicked people. Saul's pretty decent. But he does fail at following God's instruction. He sins. Now, as a result, the Bible records that the spirit of the Lord left Saul. It departed from him. Well, that didn't work, did it? We don't want to be like the other nations. Uh, We want to be like the other nations. We don't want God to intervene for us. We want a king. They thought a king would be the one to rule over them and protect them and save them. But their first try was a failure because he's a sinner. And it makes you wonder. Think about your life. As you read a historical book, it's important to find yourself in the story, but just let me make you aware the story's not about you, right? You're not David. You're not going to kill your giants in your life. I'm not even going there, all right? But it is important to find us in the story because how often do we look for the Saul's of this world thinking that if we just find him, everything will be okay? When trouble arises, how often do we look for a king like Saul? Or if you think about it this way, how often do we force ourselves to become like Saul? Tall, able, needing nothing from no one, taking on everything on our own. It makes you wonder how often we act in the exact same way the nation of Israel acted in this story. I know that God has prepared a plan for me, and I know that his word can instruct me, and I know that his word is life to me, but I think I need that. I think to, need, to get through this season of life, I, need, I think I, to battle this sin, I think in order to get through this point of suffering, this is what I need. It's not the word of the Lord. It's something like Saul. Strong, independent, able to 
pull myself up from my own bootstraps kind of mentality. Now, don't get me wrong. God did choose Saul for a king. God was responsible for putting Saul in his place. I never ever want you to read the Bible and feel like God didn't know what was going on because that's absolutely not true. God did put Saul in his place. And see, that's the point. He gave his people a king to rule over them. He gave them a king who was not perfect, a king who has potential to act in wicked ways. God gave his people what they wanted. A man created in the image of God who was cursed with sin. And what I simply mean is, he's not going to be perfect, and God knew that. You know, as you look ahead to Christmas, we will read about the birth of a different kind of king. An altogether different kind of king. A child is born, and this child is God in the flesh, the Bible says. God in the flesh. This child will be the one through whom all things were created, and nothing that has been created, the Bible says, was created apart from this person. Everything was created through him, and everything was created for him. In the New Testament, we read about a young girl who was given a promise by an angel that she would have this child. We read about a young man named Joseph who's super confused at this point because his fiance is pregnant. And we read that he's told to believe, to believe that his future wife is with child, although she's never been with a man. And then we read about this child who was born in a barn. Not a king who arrives taller than everyone else. Not with chariots. Not with horses. You see, although we may want him to, God doesn't arrive like the 82nd Airborne. Right? God doesn't use shock and awe techniques to draw the world to himself. That's not how it happens. He arrives as a baby. The seed of a woman fulfilling the promise that God had given back to Adam and Eve in the very first couple chapters of your Bible. Doesn't it make you wonder how often you have looked for this Saul-like mentality when attempting to conquer your greatest fears in life? When troubles arise, how often do we look for a king like Saul? How often do we force ourselves to become like Saul? To take it upon ourselves? To do it on our own? Telling God, I know that's what you want for me, but I want to be like the other people. God gave his people exactly what they wanted. And I would argue that he gave them exactly what they wanted so he could later show them exactly what they needed. All right, we're almost there. Back to the story. Saul's now out, right? He's done. God says, hey, Samuel, you got to tell Saul he's out. He didn't obey my instructions. He's got to be removed. Samuel goes to Saul. As you can imagine, there's a bit of back and forth. (laughs) Saul's like, I did everything. Samuel says, no, you didn't. And Saul says, I did everything. (laughs) Samuel says, no, you you didn't, Saul. Saul tells Samuel why God has removed him from being king. But in the story we did, you know, we're not going to read about that. Saul, Samuel, Saul, Samuel, Saul, you know what I mean. Samuel tells Saul, you're done. Now, here's where we're going to start reading. What I'm going to do is not read every word in chapter 16. I'm going to take a few sections of it. And I'm also probably not going to get the most, you know, all the action today. That's going to have to wait. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. All of that is a very long intro, and I swear I'm going to end on time. I took a week off so I could remember how when church ended, okay? 
It says, the Lord said to Samuel, right? Saul is out. Samuel's still there. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, right? Get over it. Move on. You got a job to do. Saul's out. Don't grieve over him any longer. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. We know that term, Bethlehemite, Bethlehem. I will send you to Jesse, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, I love this part, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. Isn't that great? God, I trust you. But if Saul knows I'm going to pick another king, I'm done. He's not going to let that happen. If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. God is sneaky, right? This is like an ethics class predicament here, isn't it? Did God tell Samuel to lie to Saul to get what he wants? I don't know. If you're under the age of 20, don't use this as an example. I'm just telling you, it's not going to go well. And then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to where? Bethlehem. We know this place. He came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling, right? A prophet showed up. You didn't know what he was there for. Is God going to condemn us, or did we do something wrong? What does God have to say to us? Did you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. Get yourselves ready. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons. And then he invited him to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at uh, Eliab. Okay, so trick. Let me give you a little tactic about reading the Old Testament. Read fast and read confident. If you say a name wrong, no one would know. All right? When he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. What's Samuel doing? Same thing the people did with Saul. The firstborn of Jesse, that's him. Gotta be him. Look at the guy. Tall, strapping. That's the guy, right? No. I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Amen for us, right? And let me tell you, you're not that great. <laughs> I'm not either. Can you imagine if God looked down and was like, I will pick the very best of you. Huh, darn it. Praise God. What does he do? Looks at the heart. By the way, this is also really cool. When Saul is chosen as king, there's a little verse in there that gets overlooked. I didn't mention it. Even I overlooked it, but I remember it now. He says, and God gave Saul a new heart. Isn't that amazing? He chose his king and he prepared his king. God does everything, people. Praise God, he does everything. I've rejected him, for the Lord does not see as the man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And then Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen one. Sorry. He's like, I'm confused. God told me to come here, told me you had some boys, and told me I'm supposed to pick a king. So Samuel says, what? Are all your sons here? You sure? 
Got them all accounted for? I mean, I know what he's feeling, right? When I go out in public, I got to count to five all the time. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. And if we split up, I say, I got three. And Sherry says, I got two, right? So it's good. So I get where Samuel's at. I live this life. Are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. He's out there. He's out in the field. He's looking after all of our, our sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for he will not, for, for we will not sit down till he comes here. I, I think that's a little overkill, but do your thing. You know what I mean? And he sent him and brought in, him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. That part's cool. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. That just means poured the oil over him. It probably dripped down his hair and his beard. In the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon who? David. From that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, which is another city. A few observations about these verses. Jesse has seven sons, and all of them seem to be the same kind of guy Saul was. But we've tried that, didn't we? It didn't work out. And what does God not do? He does not pick another king who resembled the former king. Second, God chooses the least likely of the sons to be anointed as king. The boy who's outside looking after the sheep, the shepherd, the shepherd boy, the one who has probably over the years had to lay down his life, as we will see in the future, for his sheep. Sound familiar? The one who knows what it's like to care for a flock. This doesn't really scream potential king in this context, does it? And then let's not forget this. When David is chosen as king, verse 13 records, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. See, the first king was supposed to be the man. The one that people could rely on to defeat the enemies of God. And now what? This boy is supposed to fill those shoes? Imagine being the other seven brothers going like, is Samuel sick? I think we need to replace that guy. This hardly seems like a plan to most people involved. You know, we get the same type of scenario when Jesus is live on the earth. We get the exact same thing. In the New Testament, specifically John chapter 1, we read how Jesus calls his first disciples, his first followers. And what did they say? I'll tell you. I love answering my own questions. I'll tell you. A guy named Philip said, Hey, Nathaniel. We found him of whom Moses in the law and all the prophets wrote about. We found him. This is Philip. He tells his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel, not Nathaniel. We found him. We found him. Come and check. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know what Nathaniel says? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Are you sick? What have you been doing all day? You're working too hard. You want to show me that this is who all the scriptures are about and nothing good comes from that place. We've heard this kind of stuff before. Later on, John chapter six, after Jesus says he's the bread of life, he feeds all of these people, right? He takes a couple of fish, a couple of boys sack lunches, multiplies them, everyone eats, everyone's happy. And then Jesus preaches. He says, I am the bread of life. And he says, he is the one that God has sent into the world to save people. And what do the people say? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we already know? This can't be that guy. Listen to what he's saying. He's not really anybody. 
And don't we hear these same questions today, particularly around this season, maybe from family or friends? What's so important about Jesus? Or, if God is a powerful God, why does he enter the world through a seemingly poor young couple? Why is he born in a barn? Why does God come through this small and insignificant nation like Israel, whom everyone seems to hate? Certainly there are more powerful people. Certainly there are more wealthy nations that God could have come from. You know, one atheist who is now dead, who I read a lot about, his name is Christopher Hitchens. A lot of his writing is really good for the Christian to read because you understand the mind of someone who claims there is no God. He says, why would Jesus show up in the illiterate backside of a desert? When across the world in Asia, China is booming with intellect. Wise people. The three wise men, men of the East, trained, talented, knowledgeable. Why on the backside of a desert covered in sheep stuff does God show up? But there he is. There's that shepherd boy, the youngest of Jesse's sons, the one whom later, as Isaiah would say, it's the one who came from Jesse's stump. That's the one. That's where the Messiah is going to come through. And in this story, there's David. He's the new king of Israel. Now, verses 14 to 23, it's this interesting story where David knows he's anointed as king. Saul doesn't know. Saul just knows he's out, but he hasn't gone anywhere. So Saul gets pretty depressed. The Spirit of the Lord leaves him. And Saul says, can you find someone to play me some music? I'm kind of feeling low. What happens? We know this guy. His name's David. He plays a liar. He plays an instrument. So what does Saul do? Yeah, go get him. And so now David is in the service of Saul playing music and looking after Saul's armor. All the while he knows he's anointed as king. And all the while Saul knows he's not king. Very interesting. They just don't know it about each other. Now I want to read a little bit more and then I'll close. I'll begin to close. Chapter 17, here it comes. Now the Philistines, that's an Israel enemy. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. Saul is out. David is anointed. Saul is still fighting the enemy. David's there playing him music. And there's, Saul needs to go defend Israel. There's a battle coming up. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah and the Ephes Damon. See, read fast, read, read confident, nobody knows. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up the battle line against Philistines. Let me stop here and say, the writer wants us to see something right here, right with these. You got to know that the Bible is recorded in such a way for a particular reason. The Philistines gathered their army, and they gathered in a place that belonged to Judah. Who is Judah? Judah was from the tribe of Israel. What are we supposed to know? The enemy is encroaching on territory. The enemy is pushing God's people back. They cannot withstand the power of their enemy. They can't hold their own ground. They're being defeated day after day after day. And guess what? Here comes another enemy. If that is not a metaphor for the sin that we make war against, I don't know what is. Amen? Day after day after day, it seeks to destroy us and it wants your life and it wants your heart and it wants your mind. It wants your families. Satan would love for nothing more than to destroy everything that is pure. 
And the Philistines are encroaching on God's territory. Israel's not even strong enough to hold them back. They need some warriors. It's funny that no one likes a warrior until we need one. Not true. And they drew up the battle lines against Philistines. And the Philistines, this is verse 3, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and in between them with a valley. Now, if you read the children's book, this is kind of, you can really see the picture. You got this really high mountain over here, really high mountain over here, and a valley between. And you got all these people on top of the mountain over there and on top of the mountain over there. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. I love reading this stuff. Six cubits and a span. Makes you sound so smart. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. Wouldn't you like to be that guy? (laughs) No one wants to be the the shield bearer of Goliath. You're like, geez, again, your shield is like the size of a door. You can barely pick this thing up. What are we to see here? First of all, this man really lived. You mean he was bigger than Shaquille O'Neal? Yeah. You mean he was bigger than Andre the Giant? Two feet taller than Andre the Giant. About nine feet tall. And his armor weighed about 125 pounds. 125 pounds, that's what his armor weighed. Without the shield and without the spear. And let me tell you, I got some stuff in my house I kind of lift every once in a while. Maybe 15 pounds each. And, you know, I wouldn't want to lift much more. That's a quarter of what's on this guy's body. What are we supposed to see? He's intimidating. He's big. He's an enemy. In fact, the spear, the wood part of the spear is so big, a normal hand couldn't even grasp it. It's the size of a weaver's beam. The hand had to be huge to even pick up the spear that he would throw at people. And then, of course, again, you got the armor bearer who's like, here we go again. I got to pick up the door and walk in front of you. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? You know what that means? What are y'all doing here? Do you see who's standing in front of you? Do you see me? You have nothing that can match me. I am your enemy. I have come to kill and there literally is nothing you can do about it. Your people of Saul, I'll kill Saul right now. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. A significant moment in the history of Israel. Will they once again become slaves? This is scary. Will they once again be bought, serve another people group and not be able to worship their one true living God? And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel. I'm here because I don't care who your God is. I'll kill you. This is evil personified. 
This is the greatest threat they've ever faced. A man who is nine feet tall, a man whose shield is like the size of a door, who's wearing 125 pounds of metal that you're not going to be able to cut through, and whose spear is probably like me. Just point here. And then you know what he says? I spit on Israel. I defy you. In fact, I'm here standing in front of you because you are nothing. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, before I read this next verse, what do you think Israel's thinking? We have a man. We chose him, in fact. He's our king. He's handsome. He can hold a sword. And guess what? He's shoulders taller than everybody else. His name is Saul. And we know he's our king, and we know he takes this stuff seriously because Samuel told him to protect us, and that was his job. We have a man. You have a man. We have a man. That's what I'd be thinking. I got a king. He's pretty tall. Not as tall as you, but, you know, he'll get the job done. Verse 11. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The one man who's not supposed to be afraid. What does the book record right away? When Saul heard what Goliath was saying, the man who's supposed to be the champion, who's supposed to stand in between Israel and the enemy, the one who's supposed to go in the in-between, the one who's supposed to conquer the enemy, he's not supposed to be afraid. He's supposed to be ready for battle. And he says, we're afraid. The army of God's over here. The Philistines are over there. Nobody wants to go down in between because to give up the high ground would be horrible. Nobody's making a pass. In fact, we'll get to it next week. They do this for 40 days. It's a stalemate. God's people have no idea what to do. For 40 days, Goliath comes out and he says, give me a man. And for 40 days, Israel says, we think he's back there. He's in the closet. He should be in front of us. For 40 days, Israel wonders what is about to happen. We are going to be slaves again. I thought we had a big, strong king. I thought we had a man. I thought we had a champion. You know, they need a champion in that moment, don't they? They need a man who can stand in the in-between. They need a powerful king who will once and for all defeat this threat that threatens to enslave them. This is exactly what they need. I'm going to read the next few verses and I'll close. It goes right to this. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 12. Now David, write to David. I love the writer of this book. Write to David. Now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. We know Bethlehem, don't we? Sing about it. This time of year, every year. Now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. That's Jesse. Jesse was old. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him was Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. So we know the first three, we skip the next three, and then verse 14 goes to this. David was the youngest. 
The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David's playing music for Saul, serving him with his armor, and he's also going back to his father's place to tend the flock. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and he took his stand morning and night. I'm going to close. Church, we need a champion, don't we? Goliath is evil personified. He's everything wrong with the world. And as we look to Christmas, what I want you to do is celebrate and realize heaven did send his champion. Amen? And David just prepares us for him. David prepares us because Isaiah has told us that from that family, from the stump of Jesse, this shoot's going to come. You see, Jesus is in the family line of David. He comes from Judah. He comes from Bethlehem. We need a champion to fight for us. We all feel this way. In the middle of our war with sin, in the middle of our war with tragedy or with suffering, all we want is somebody to go right before us and deal with it. Because every time we've tried, we get afraid. It doesn't work. We fail. We need heaven's champion to come and defeat this world of darkness. And friends, that's what the Christmas story is all about. Heaven sending his champion. And when that champion comes, he will tell us, never again will you fight alone. Never again will you go to war with evil. Never again will your sin be able to conquer you. Amen, church. Never again will the besetting sins that you can't shake ever be willing to hold you down. Never again will you have to go to the valley on your own and to try to defeat the enemy. Never again, because I am here and I'm the one God has chosen and you can follow me. Now, we'll save the rest of David's story for next week. Let's pray.